0: Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. John Nolan, we're going to talk about how to evaluate evidence, and we're also going to talk about why null hypothesis and correct hypothesis are important when projecting forward into a study. So it's been a couple of years since I talked to Dr. Nolan. I know it's going to be a really fascinating conversation for me. I hope it is for you. As always, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I wanna talk about the MyDay Multifocal for a second. We had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before, was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa- our patients a lot of questions about their, patient, about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of 1 to 10 how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lenses. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And, um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. So, Dr. Nolan, thanks so much for doing this. You look way more dapper than I do today. Uh, I should have put on my, my at least a jacket, um, but this is fun. You probably had a full day in uh, in Ireland, and I'm just kind of getting started. So, what's been going on over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, I've had a full day in the in the sunny southeast, as you can see from my. Uh, I'm in my office now, and you can see maybe out the window the beautiful, oh, the beautiful green of Ireland. So that's our lovely Greenway, which I I have the the pleasure of. Um, uh, looking at every day. So, yeah, we're on that Friday feeling, I suppose. It's been a, a good week uh, with everyone. Lots going on, as always, at the NRCI. The researchers are doing so well, um, really strategizing now for the next phase of projects that, that we're running. But also, I suppose, there's been a lot of work uh, in preparation for our Bond conference, which happens this summer in Cambridge, UK. So, this is our network of carotenoid scientists where we all get together and in a very positive way, challenge each other on the science and network. And um, this is really the platform where we see, you know, the next big idea or the next group of scientists that can bring so much to what is a multidisciplinary uh, piece of research. So, yeah, it's good. Well, I, it's think good. It's... I, mean, I remember the last time we spoke, uh, it, we, we were right at COVID had just started and we were both trying to tread water and figure out um, where we were going to go. So. Slowly, surely and carefully, I think we've managed to get back to this kind of physical place where we can meet each other and, and conduct research again the way we want. It's,
0: it's really surreal when I go back and, and I don't listen to many of my podcasts uh, historically, but I go back and listen to some of the podcasts that I did in basically a year ago. And you could feel the stress in my voice. I can hear it and I can, I can feel how like the weight of the world felt like it was on my shoulders. You know, as a as a business owner, you you know this, as a business owner, a practice owner, you're trying to make sure that you have a, a place for your people. And so it's just a really weird, a weird spot. And I and I listened to that. And I'm like, oh, I, I can feel, I can tell how stressed out I was. Do you ever do you ever have that sense? Have you ever gone back and listened to something that you were doing right in the middle of the pandemic and and feel feel your stress level? Maybe you're 100%. a better person than I am.
1: No, 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 100% because I like you have a have a young family and um and it wasn't just that we were trying to, you know, understand how we were going to continue with our careers or how we were as you rightly say support our colleagues. It was like we had our family to 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 mind and we had to do homeschool and we had to, you know, just find different ways, but uh, you know, I think, you know, firstly congratulations on your own podcast because I think you know, these types of discussions, and even back then, when we look back now, they were so useful, weren't they? Because, you know, maybe there was too many of them or whatever at times, but ultimately it did form a different type of way of com- to communicate and a network. And um, I've, I got a lot of um, comfort from that for, you know, from a research perspective and, you know, the whole idea of keeping the connection with uh, doctors, with DODs in terms of that discussion, that communication, that education. Platform like yours have been fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I experienced all those feelings you had, um, but you know, I think we learned so much, didn't we, as well during that time?
0: Yeah, I, I, I hope we did. I certainly hope we did. I mean, uh, I think we learned about our resiliency. I think we learned about how to navigate uncertainty, and actually, that kind of will springboard us right into our conversation because one of the things that. So I'm not trying to divert because we, you and I, could talk a ton about about that, and I hope to someday be able to do it in person over a beer next time you're on this side of the uh, of the world. But uh, but actually, navigating uncertainty is one of these things that uh, a lot of people feel like you know outsiders, you know, outside of of healthcare settings. We. Just to, without going into too much depth, I just had a conversation the other day with um, with a group of people who are independent, who are analyzing a change in scope of practice for the profession of optometry. and uh, And you mentioned this rigorous debate that goes in with the carotenoid evidence and the scientists that get together and go back and forth. And what most people don't see... Is that in healthcare, in science, and I think we got away from this uh, at least in in the United States. Our media did not do a good job during COVID, highlighting the nuances of rigorous debate that it goes on in in scientific communities and in healthcare communities. And so, to try to you know discuss that debate and how you can know different things are important and how you can know that um, you know some evidence is valid and some evidence isn't. Uh, those are nuances that my suspicion that the general public and even you know, doesn't appreciate fully. And uh, And so, for example, you know, when we think about glaucoma, um, you can get uh, you know a hundred experts, I mean, top of the, you know world class experts in glaucoma, and you can get them all in a room and getting them to agree on agree on one case about whether they should treat or you know increase treatment or do yeah. this surgery or that surgery. You're not going to have that happen. And so I think there's this idea in the public that in healthcare, it's like, oh, well, if, if John Nolan does this, and then everybody's going to do that. If this study tells us this, then everybody needs to do that. And so I guess my whole diatribe there is to say that you know, these discussions are way more nuanced. They're way more uh, fun to have. But in order to springboard into those conversations, we've got to understand the hierarchy of evidence. And I wanted to just start kind of by talking about how you view that. And why that's important to you as a scientist.
1: Yeah, I think it's a perfect preamble into what we want to discuss today. And, you know, I think the whole element here of, of and the whole point of this is is this the evidence base, you know. And if you think of it from, let's just think of it from an, an optometrist perspective. You know, he or she has so much going on, busy practice, all the stresses of running a practice or being part of a practice and delivering a good service for the patient. When something new like macular nutrition comes to play, and this whole something that they weren't trained in, if you, if, we're, if we're to think about it, you know classically nutrition is a relatively small part of optometry training, and then an ophthalmology training, and then and then we're saying as scientists, oh, you should do this because we have evidence to suggest you should do so, and you know even the best study, and we'll talk today about the levels of evidence, but even the best study might have so many uh, limitations that need to be addressed maybe for the next study. That's why there's always a next study. There's always a new way we can, can do things. Um, but to answer your question, I think, you know, if, um, you know, optometry and eye care is to embrace in, in in nutrition, for example, and want to know how to make the right decisions in order how to do that, I think living in a currency of peer-reviewed um, scientific evidence is, is the safest way to do that. Um, but there's a there's a couple of key assumptions, right, within that. And it's it's good because I'm going to kind of address some of these today, even if it's peer-reviewed publication, which what I've been saying from the podium to the hundreds and hundreds of ODs that I've spoke to across America and so on, that, you know, peer-reviewed is the way to go. But even within that, you know, there there can be challenges if the peer review isn't appropriate or if the the methodology is in state of the art and, you know, if the study design isn't optimal. So I think there there, there needs to be uh, an understanding of the different levels of evidence and the different types of evidence. And if we, you know, what I might do actually, um, it's probably a good time to uh, share my screen. Yeah,
0: just go ahead and share it. Let's see what you got.
1: Yeah. So what, what we see here now is um, the pyramid in terms of levels of evidence. So the first thing to say here is in terms of levels of evidence, what doesn't even get in here is something like a magazine article that has you know maybe a story or some, some company may you know get someone to write an article and it gets put into a magazine article an optometry article that's not peer reviewed now I'm not saying that what's in that that content is is not valid it may have some information that's very useful but i suppose the, the first point to say is that be very uh, cautious in terms of the information that you're getting that exists within the non peer reviewed world Okay, so sense what the
0: so so yeah. Professor Nolan just just so I can summarize yeah. what you're saying for people who are just listening, is everybody remembers this uh, this pyramid of evidence, and just you know the base of that kind of the um, the lowest portion of that is animal laboratory studies. Then we have case reports or case series, case control studies, cohort studies, randomized uh, randomized clinical trials, and then um, you know obviously meta analysis and then clinical practice guidelines on top yeah, of that exactly. so i wanted to point that out for those people that are listening and i think to your point about you know uh kind of it's derogatory i suppose but but i call them throwaway yeah. journals you know they're they're yeah. not they're not um it's not that they're not valuable i think they are valuable but nobody kind of collects those journals and archives them generally they they read them once and then they toss them in the in the uh in the can so that's what you're referring to is is uh is those types that aren't that's right
1: and it's it's those articles and you know as you've just said you know maybe there's some value in them but in terms of certainty in in terms of taking levels of evidence and certainty around evidence that you know if it if it says that a particular nutritional supplement is good well of course the magazine is going to say that because surely some organization that's selling that uh, supplement is sponsoring that and so on so in theory, at least, the, the place that we can draw our information from where we can make decisions in the clinic setting would be to, to look at the peer-reviewed science. And that's typically a platform which is a, a scientific journal, um, ideally a journal that has a high impact factor, which means that it has a high readership and that the reviewers within that system are expert enough to look at a new piece of research. So research has to always be related to some type of hypothesis. Um, and a hypothesis quite simply is, you know, it's 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 an idea of something that we don't know because it hasn't been tested properly or it hasn't been shown before. Okay. So that's the how we progress science and thereafter inform medicine, uh clinical practice you see if you look at it um on the slides here you can see at the top of that. Ultimately that's the ultimate dream of a scientist that you can contribute to peer reviewed science that finds its way into the clinical situation, because that means that we're affecting society in a positive way, particularly in our area of research where we're looking at human health, nutrition, macular pigments, and so on. So um, looking at all of these and all of these types of peer-reviewed studies will have value. And as you've labeled them, I'll just quickly go through them again. You know, the case reports are something that would be classic in, in, When I look at um, speakers, maybe from optometry practice that come to say COPE events and so on, they may be presenting uh, case experiences and, you know, they may be very, and typically they're pretty excited about individual cases. And this happens in in medicine as well. We see it the whole time. And sometimes cases are very useful, but they're, they're also very limited because they're exactly just that. They're just cases. They're just examples of what might happen with a very small, sometimes even only one sample, one case. So while that may be informative or suggestive that there's something important here, um, it really needs to be extended to a broader research question and a more refined research question. And
0: so to put a little finer point on that, uh, Professor Nolan, where you get the case control studies, generally speaking, is I see an observation in my practice that I think is unique. And I see that three or four times. And I might, I might say, look, I'm going to report on this to the to a, a broad swath of people. And I'm going to uh, have a hypothesis on why that happened for those specific patients. And then somebody else is going to say, look, I, I take that, that, that Chris Wolf's idea, and I'm going to say, let's do, a, let's do a series, a study on a case control. And, th- and that brings us to this next level of evidence,
1: essentially. Exactly right. And that's where you might say, well, let's just stay in our field. So, for example, patients with macular degeneration have a lack of macular pigment that might be the hypothesis and you may see you may believe that in the first instance in the first case because you may have measured it in an amd patient and they have low but you don't really know until you compare it to a control and the control here by the true definition would be a patient of the very same type of genetics age profile um, that doesn't have the disease but yet has this lack or this deficiency of macular pigment and if you show this piece of research in that case control, now we have a little bit more evidence to believe um, that it may actually be the be the case. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. And, yep. perfect. And, and progressing through perfect. that then, and you know, moving on to the kind of more serious levels of evidence, what we have then are our cohort studies, which essentially are this kind of large sample studies which have a longitudinal nature. So you may you may have a research hypothesis here that. You know, having macular pigment is a risk factor for macular degeneration, and those who do not have enough of of the pigment will develop the disease in the future. So how would you test that? Well, it's very difficult, and it's why it's a high level of evidence, because you have to have a lot of people with with those measurements performed, and you typically will have to follow them over a period of time, typically longitudinal investigation. So ultimately, follow them throughout the years, throughout the decades to see if that hypothesis was correct. So very, very expensive type experiment to do, a very difficult experiment to do. But if you can do these large longitudinal uh, experiments, um, they they can be very, very valuable indeed. And then I suppose the the, the area that the the listeners and the viewers may be more comfortable or familiar with would be when we talk about these randomized clinical uh, placebo control trials. And these are really what we kind of specialize at, at the Nutrition Research Centre Ireland, where we have, in, in our case, various interventions that we believe are going to be effective. They're going to help increase the macular pigments and they're going to improve vision and so on. And that's our, our, our hypothesis, our test hypothesis. But in order to test that, again, a very difficult experiment, A very when it's done correctly with state-of-the-art methodologies, you know, very expensive to run and it doesn't take just one individual or one skill set say optometry in this situation you're looking at multidisciplinary you're looking at statistics you're looking at experimental science you're looking at vision science you're looking at running clinical trials you're looking at all of these brought together you know and we're going to today speak about um crest and and the work uh, that went into the crest experiment in part and you know it took 6 7 years even post getting the the, the, public, the funding to do it, to, to deliver the experiment, to interpret the experiment, and to publish the experiment. And that's why we put so much value on the likes of the CREST trial, which was conducted in the way it was. And then the, I suppose the, the pinnacle of all this, as I said, is to get it to use in clinical practice. But is uh, this other type of uh, peer-reviewed paper where what we call a meta-analysis or a systematic review, which is where independent qualified experts we will look at these research questions and we will look at the totality of the evidence. So taking everything from the case studies up to the, the level one evidence, which is your randomized uh, placebo control trials, and basically making an, um, an assessment and the strict rules on how you would do that as to whether the hypothesis is actually a true hypothesis and something that brings value and thereafter gets to be used in, in the clinical practice. So when we look so let at me it, pause then, you there right,
0: really right. quickly because because I think this next piece is is important but you know you talked about um, you talked about funding when you get to the the uh, portion of a randomized control trial and it's quite expensive where do most research where do most researchers get the dollars for that type of funding?
1: Okay, so we typically will do what we call a competitive um, a grant uh, uh, assessment. So what we'll do is we we'll look at what uh, funding agencies, in our case, we've got significant funding from the European government. So essentially from the taxpayer. So there's certain monies and in, in America, you look at the, the NIH National Eye Institute, which is similar. That's, you know, essentially government taxpayers' money that goes in. And essentially these organizations will set up appropriate research calls. So they ideally a call is you want to fix a particular problem. So when I wrote um, my CRESTA protocol for for funding through the European Research Council, there was about two years preparation in just writing the experiment um, because you will only get the funding at the level we did, almost 2 million euros. If you have a study design that is is very well developed, well informed, um, state of the art, suitable to address the question. So to answer your question, we, we get it from independent competitive grants, such as the European Research Council for the CREST study.
0: And so I think that's important to think about is that, you know, a lot of your research has been used by specific companies, right? And we don't have to disguise that. But but I think the underlying funding, which I wasn't aware of, is coming from sort of this independent governmental agency that, uh, that helps drive the evidence, which I think is, is pretty important. I think it's an important point to point out. Absolutely. Why not, so let me ask you this then, like what, what's the next threshold step between going through a randomized controlled trial and then saying, look, I want to I prove this through um, like a, you know, I guess it would be a European type of FDA. What would be your step in going through that type of process? What would that look like or is it not an issue with uh, supplements?
1: Well, well, I think it. I think it can be enhanced, and I think multi-centered efforts. You know, we're already seeing it that other people kind of take the ideas from the research question. In our case, it was the use of the triple carotenoids, the three carotenoids, and that that's replicated elsewhere. Ultimately, the goal now is that this science is used where we go and we speak to government to to make it uh, appropriate that, you know, these types of safe nutrients, which are uh, validated now, which have uh, efficacy, uh, which have demonstrated uh, benefits for patients with macular degeneration, for example, that there's a bigger effort kind of from government to make it um, feasible for patients and doctors to get access to those. Um, But I want to go back to one other point that you made, because I agree with you, it's it's truly important. You know, the whole concept, well, you know, uh, Nolan is saying, you know, the the three carotenoids because he's done all his work with macular health for example absolutely right that's the case and but but it's good that you have showing the light on the reason for that and the reason for that is just like everything we do in our scientific experiments is we want to have the best way to measure macular pigment we want to have the best way to measure visual function part of the statistical methodology um, and study methodology rather here is having the best supplement we didn't just pick the macular health supplement. We spent nearly 15 years testing all types of supplements. Um, it was when we got access to the macular supplement that we started to see in single blind experiments, um, much better results. So therefore, it only made sense that that was the supplement that we selected to use in our major European trials. Okay, And
0: so- that brings us to the, the, the idea of a hypothesis. You can have a hypothesis that is one way and if you're using a supplement that you believe doesn't based on the evidence that you've evaluated isn't going to perform away then you could do a whole entire expensive crest study and then you have to wonder did it work did it not work exactly. because it was a a bad product or did it work you know so that I think that's that's kind of the next point and and I'll let you kind of talk about your perspective of a null hypothesis.
1: Yeah no thank you and and it, you're right you know because like we, we, we published papers pre our, our, our most trials, which were mesosexanthin trials, um, where we had been using lutein. Um, and in, in some of the cases, the lutein wasn't even getting out of the, of the tablets because it was so, it was so encapsulated in the, the hard tablets. Patients were getting very little response. And how did we know that? When we look now retrospectively, even at our blood data, there was very little benefit from taking those interventions. So essentially we were comparing placebo to placebo. And then the other problem was when we started to use lutein, albeit in a kind of more bioavailable pure form, we still saw this non-responder, this large percentage of the population that were not getting any benefit in terms of their macular pigment from this type of intervention. And it was all of this evolution of the idea that led us through the use of the, of the, of the, the three carotenoids, which took us to our research question, which was the null, the null hypothesis is basically in the context of macular pigment was, was basically the, the hypothesis that I was trying to disprove. So the null hypothesis in the context of the macular pigments and the macular carotenoids says that taking the carotenoid supplements has no benefit in macular pigment or vision. So as the researcher, we were trying to disprove the null hypothesis. So in order to do that, we had to conduct an experiment that had the appropriate supplement, um, as you know, we use Mackey Health that had the appropriate measures of vision. We m- measured contrast sensitivity and, and we've spoken before as to why contrast sensitivity is such a, a sensitive measure. But also, um, in terms of measuring macular pigment, that we were able to image the totality of the pigment, that the variability of the measurement was low. So it was the nuts and bolts of all the elements of the experiment that had to be put in place before we could even logically address a research question like, does taking an appropriate supplement um, enhance visual function in patients with macular degeneration? And our, our research question in, in CREST had, had two elements. One was for macular degeneration. Could we enhance vision when we use the three carotenoids versus a supplement that didn't have the three carotenoids? But for the general population, it was simpler. It was if, if the people on the active intervention took this uh, carotenoid supplement that had lutein, zeaxanthin and meso, could we significantly increase the macular pigment? Could we enhance their their visual function? The null hypothesis said we couldn't. So we had to conduct the experiment to to disprove that. And if we were to disprove that, well, then we had delivered level one evidence, just like at the top of our pyramid, that should inform the clinical setting, that should give the doctor, going back to the very first point that we discussed today, the confidence to know that this is the right thing to do based on best scientific methodology.
0: Yeah, so that's great. And and just to articulate, you keep saying, tree carotenoids <laughs> Sorry, <it's my> <laughs> and so uh, i love i love the way you say that so obviously yeah. it's the first time you said it, i was like tree carotenoids no have three carotenoids okay yeah. all right so no we're good we're good i <laughs> mean you can
1: see them lutein zeaxanthin and meso zeaxanthin and and as i said already our test hypothesis here was that enriching this um this pigment with with the purified safe supplementation would would enhance visual function and we won't go into it today, the reasons for that, but the idea being that you're going to make the macula healthy because it's it has antioxidant properties. You're also going to optimize the use of light at the macula, you're going to reduce the impact of short wavelength blue light, you're going to reduce photooxidative stress and ultimately um, we knew uh, going into this experiment that um, general society had very low levels to begin with. So uh, quite quite remarkably, then we conducted the experiment. Um, this is I'm showing you the, the the general experiment from the healthy population. So today we won't speak about uh, age-related macular degeneration, but in, in in a basic research question here, um, uh, I put this up. This is actually really really important in the context of um, the validity of design, and we talk about the quality of the type of intervention. So what I want to say here is. It's not just, Chris, down to the fact that you're doing a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. It's it's the quality in which you, you, you implement that is equally important. We spoke about having the right supplement. We spoke about having the right testing um, systems to measure pigment, to measure vision. And um, the, the efforts we went to with Crest were that we actually published a paper before the experiment, which presented our hypothesis, which presented all our protocol in terms of everything we were going to do, and also our outcome measure. And what that means if you do a a trial of of this level, um, it means you can't change your outcome measure based on what the data shows you. You can't go looking at contrast and just because you don't see anything, maybe say, well, you know, uh, glare is reduced or, you know, acuities are improved. If if we had failed by improving contrast, the conclusion from our experiment would have been that the null hypothesis was correct we couldn't disprove it so it was a really big task and it was it was a really informed task do you understand kind of what i'm saying in terms of like this quality piece in terms of protocol so the, before we essentially what
0: yeah yeah essentially what you're saying is that you you're you're preempting you're saying this is what this is what we believe is going to be important to to disprove the null hypothesis and if it's the case so you're going to put that out there for everybody to yeah. see and if it's the case that that doesn't occur, you can't hide it. Exactly I, can't, right. I can't go out and say, there's 30 different things I'm going to measure. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what those 30 things are, but then I'm going to publish the things that wind up being positive on my side. That's what you're saying.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And you can see this was published in 2014, so long before we even had access to the data for analysis from these interventional trials. Um, and as we move on, let's see. The first thing I want to show you here um, is the study design. So it was a placebo-controlled trial. So that means that 50% of the participants who were healthy in this case um, had a placebo; they had no active ingredients, and 50% had um, the MacuHealth 10102 formula. Um, All participants had low pigment to begin with, and as a a pre-published contrast sensitivity six cycles per degree was our primary outcome measure. And I want to show you this in terms of one of the outcomes we see. Um, this shows you time over 12 months at the x-axis and the bottom axis. So for those of you who can't see, we're showing a graph of the response. And clearly what you can see here is that the placebo group had a really flat line, um, which is perfect. That's what you want to see with a placebo group. And the active intervention, this is mesozeaxanthin, this is lutein, 600% improvement, for example, and this is zeaxantin. And you can see here, therefore, this gives us also a couple of things. It gives us confidence in our methodology that our HPLC, which is basically the analytical methods that we use to quantify the carotenoids that are going into the blood system following consumption of the intervention, that we can see that it's going on its way. I like to call the blood system the taxi system. It's what delivers these carotenoids to the target tissue, in our case, the macula um, and the brain. And uh, also, this is important in the context of of a proper trial because you understand that your compliance and that the bioavailability of the intervention is where it should be. So really, really... And, you know, let's pause for a second because this is one slide, but this probably took, you know, someone four years to do this type of analysis to who just specializes in analytical chemistry, who knows how to run those systems. And we're very lucky at the NRCI; We have all this capacity across our multidisciplinary team. So Alfonso being the head of the of the chemistry lab will, will manage all the protocols where the scientists will take the blood samples um, and quantify it this way. So really like this is the type of data you should be looking for when you look at a paper that's making strong claims um, Around a, a type of carotenoid intervention, for example,
0: Professor Nolan. If if somebody were going to argue against this, the point that you're making here in terms of blood serum, mm-hmm. um, or or serum concentrations of uh, carotenoids, where they might say, you know, we don't believe that mesozeaxanthin is that important. <laughs> how would they? How would they dispute that based on this this data?
1: Well, it's 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 quite difficult to because. Um, what you what you learn from it is that you learn that you know the the human that consumed on average and it was across all of them you can see the narrow standard errors um they all got a significant uh, change in their mesozeaxanthin one of the things that may and has wrongly been disputed over time was that this by taking mesozeaxanthin you're suppressing you're reducing yes. the other
0: carotenoids, right right and tell me uh, about why, why that's not the case
1: well it, in this trial, I can tell you it's not the case because I know it's comparable to the, and it represents actually the best response that we've seen in blood, having measured, uh lutein, mesozyme antigen response in blood. So it it I it would be the case that if I had very um, small changes in lutein and not typical of what I had seen previous, we I mean I can answer it better by looking at the 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 Crest AMD data where we actually had a, a lutein group versus a mesozeaxanthin plus lutein group. And in summary, the lutein response was identical. So it doesn't, it clearly doesn't have that competitive effect. Um, and it, it makes sense to me that it wouldn't at, at the levels um, that, that, that we had worked with. And the other point, Chris, is that this was all following informed previous work. So we didn't just go to 10 10 we had spent years, I'd worked up as high as 17 milligrams of mesozeaxanthin in one experiment. And ultimately, it was informed science that showed us that having 10 milligrams has given you the optimal amount. But I'm glad you asked the question because it has been a misconception um, within our field. And here you can see that these humans on the active in Crest did fantastic in terms of their response, right?
0: And um, and so to amplify that a little bit more, because I'd like to get your opinion on this as well, is, you know, it's not even just about the serum levels, but but what actually is contributing to the macula as well. And so what you're saying is that the, the 1010-2 is superior and doesn't lead to competition of just straight lutein and zeaxanthine uh, and prohibit a, a macula from um, causing uh, conversion of meso-ze- of zeaxanthin or of lutein into mesozeaxanthin. So that's the other kind of side of this is that yeah. you can get the serum levels up, but that doesn't really matter because... Your macula is gonna convert everything anyway, so you're just competing with other other forms. So what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I know you alluded to it, but but how would how do we know that, that that isn't the case?
1: So we know it's not the case in the blood. Let's look, let's look at the macular pigment itself. So here you can see here you can see actually the tissue. Um and here you can see the uh, the placebo group again showing your 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 exactly what you want again, validating our measurement. But well, can you see the macular pigment response here, Chris? Um, this is the macular yeah. pigment volume, and this is the central, central part. You can look at the, either the peaks or the entire volume. And a couple of things. 100% of the participants that took the MacUHealth 10102 intervention had a significant response in their macular pigment. So everyone got benefit. So, well, so it
0: gets from their gut into their bloodstream, into their macular pigment.
1: Yeah. So essentially, it goes from the gut. It has to be microencapsulated. It goes through, through the intestine into the limb system and then into the blood system and deliver to the target tissue. But taking a step back, my first point is that if you don't change the blood levels, you have no chance in changing the tissue levels. And in order to know if you change the blood levels, an experiment at a basic level would have to measure blood carotenoid response as a primary, because otherwise you're making assumptions. So we, we achieve that. And then we're moving in, as you rightly say, well, let's look at the tissue. Here we can see the tissue. See a couple of things here. We see that everyone is responding, but also, Chris, and something I really want to highlight here. And I've said this in all my lectures when I'm, when I'm doing my COPE lectures, um, in America and it's in the paper. Changing macular pigment is a commitment to good nutrition, a good supplement. It takes time. It's not a silver bullet that happens overnight. It's, it's a whole change to how the person behaves in terms of their nutrition, their lifestyle and use, the use of the supplement. And this validates our earlier work more where we see that the longer you supplement, Chris, the mm-hmm. better the outcome. And even though- And, and your this, graph we, goes, your your time span is how long? 12 months. So can you see here okay. zero, to 12 months. Um, and what we know actually, if I extend time, which I did in another experiment, this continues to go up. We hit saturation. Let's go back to blood. Um, we hit saturation in blood I know it's that 10 days, That's the we call that the half-life. And blood will fluctuate because diet has a greater effect on blood, day-to-day changes in diet and carotenoids. Um, but what we see here is that the, the, the sustained effect of supplementation has a sustained improvement effect in macular pigment. So in other words, in the context of a research question that we're trying to optimize vision or visual function, really, and when I'm designing experiments now, I say at a minimum, you want 10 months, 12 months if you expect to have an improvement in visual functions. And sometimes other scientists, other researchers try and do a quick study where they're doing supplementation over a couple of months and they expect to see things. And the answer is they're highly likely not to um, because in order to change this macular pigment, which is the goal of the intervention, we have to do a lot in terms of having a quality supplement. With the three carotenoids, we have to, in the first instance, fill up the reservoir of carotenoids, which is all the fat in our body, okay? And ultimately, when we saturate our reservoirs, we will have sufficient amounts available for the biological turnover into the macular tissue. And that is why, and we're not dealing with a situation, Chris, that any of the patient's pre-supplementation will have sufficient amount of macular pigment. And that is why I believe this type of supplementation has been so effective because everyone can get some benefit from it if they get access to the right supplement and if they do it the right way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in, in the second instance then to show you that the primary outcome measure as published was, was contrast sensitivity. And here you can see your, um, points along your spatial frequency contrast sensitivity curve. And, um, we have a new paper coming out actually this year. I won't show it today uh, because we won't have time, but, um, Remarkably, we did demonstrate that the primary outcome measure here um, was achieved. And in a study like this, and I, I remember Paul Bernstein, you know, kind of complimenting this at one of our Bon events to say that to put a primary outcome measure into a, a study like this and to achieve it is quite a unique thing. It's quite a unique um, uh, achievement, if you like. Um, but also the interpretation of this, Chris, and this is crucially important. It's kind of sciencey, but I'd love if, if your listeners and your viewers could kind of understand this. The whole point of doing a placebo controlled trial is that you're comparing the results of your active group, which for those of you that can see the, the screen will see it's it's the orange here over 12 months to the placebo group. So you're not just looking at the active group in isolation. The statistical models that we build, we call it in this case repeated measures analysis. And we say in that analysis is is there a change in, in macular pigment over time? That's the first question. And as you can see visually here, that's absolutely the case for the active group. But built into that model, that statistical model is, is that change over time significantly different to what happened to placebo over the same time? Right. And that's, that's, that's everything you need to work towards if you are claiming a double-blind placebo control trial. You have to look at your data for the active group in connection with and relate to the placebo group and vice versa. Looking at them in isolation is not; it 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 means that you haven't done a placebo control trial. You may not have not measured the placebo in the first instance. And I really want to emphasize that point.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying so, is, I could I could do a study that would only look at, um, at you know, supplementation and increasing, even increasing uh, serum concentration and any, even increasing carotenoid. But then if I didn't compare it at the same time to the placebo in a, in that same trial, I would maybe went outside and said, yeah, another study looked at com- placebo. Then it's not really, yeah. you're saying it's not a randomized control trial. You're, you're comparing a, a different study to a different study.
1: Exactly right. And, and you're, or you're looking at one variable in isolation. I mean, the macular pigment example here is, is probably not the best example because our methodology, um, it's, it's its kind of like an exact measurement, the variance in how we image the macular pigment, we've optimized that to a very, very high standard. Um, but what if we have learning effects? Or what if we have variability in our measurements? And this typically can happen, as you will know, when you're looking at visual functions. That there's more variation in the different types of tests that are out there. And the question is, is what you're seeing In terms of improvement or increasing a particular target tissue, in this case, macular pigment due to um, variation or learning effects or placebo effects, or is it actually due to the intervention? And the only way to do that is to put the active group in the same statistical equation as the placebo group. And um, when you run a proper randomized placebo control trial, one other thing, Chris, I want to point out is that you're comparing like with like throughout the experiment. So you're com- the patients in Crest, for example, had identical, uh, comparable, if you like, uh, age, body fat, starting macular pigment, you know what I mean? So we were comparing like with like. If you have intervention groups that are fundamentally different, uh, maybe one group full of um, males in the other group full of females or one group with people with um, a high starting macular pigment versus low how can you interpret anything from that type of data set because um, you do not now in the true sense have a placebo controlled sample to work with does that make sense also? yeah
0: total sense so then right. um, then tell me a little bit about where if you were going to not use if, if if, well, you don't have to specifically talk about studies or a specific study, but if you were talking about a null hypothesis and why that's so important and if you don't have it where where you'll fall short. Can you talk about that okay. a little bit?
1: yeah, well i actually I actually do have a study I have a, I have a, a, a an example here I think that's that speaks to a lot of the issues um, that i that I was uh, addressing. Here we can see a recently published uh, paper. And it was in a, a peer-reviewed journal, um, in a journal called Nutrients. Um, and this was by uh, Pink and Davy. And um, if we look at this, their research hypothesis was macular. I had a keen interest in this because it was macular pigment also. And the aim of this experiment was to evaluate changes in night vision function um, in individuals that took um, night supplements over a six-month period compared to placebo. And if you look at the title of this, it's claimed as a randomized placebo controlled trial. Okay, so, so it's going so far. The
0: study is night vision and carotenoid, uh a randomized placebo controlled trial on effects of carotenoid supplementation on night vision in older adults. So so I'm gonna pause there. If if you're if you're saying that right now this, this example isn't a randomized placebo controlled trial, how do the reviewers at nutrients allow this to come through? What 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 happens? Because, you know, from a late from a late a lay, uh, clinician, right? Like you know, my my thought is, if I see something published in a journal, I can rely on the the reviewers on that journal to weed out. Because what I'm thinking you're going to say is this wasn't randomized control, right? I'm I'm expecting, right? I'm a clinician. I have a a reasonable a reasonably good uh, system to evaluate studies, but. But I'm not, that's not my, that's not my wheelhouse, right? Um, yeah. And so so how do I, so I have to put some trust in a paper in, or, or in a journal to do some of the work for me to know that this is something I can trust. Well, how can I even know if, if, if this isn't the case? How do I know what, what happens in these journals that, uh, you know, I don't pick on them, but what, what happens that this gets through if that's not actually the case?
1: Yeah, so this represents a new challenge in peer review. The classic peer review is a situation that these journals have high, as I said at the beginning, have a high impact factor. That they um, will do a very detailed assessment um, of the data. Experts, you know, I will review. I will review several papers a month in in our area, and I do so with a lot of interest and and care because it's 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 fundamentally important to do that. The first issue that we see here, and um, it's quite remarkable that this paper was submitted on the 9th of August, 2021 and published on the 14th of September. Hmm. Um, It was accepted on the 10th of September. Now, having been a a reviewer and as an editor in many journals, I find this quite astonishing, um, that a peer review. So think of what's happened here. In theory, this paper has come to the journal. It has been sent out to hopefully three or four reviewers. That are typically and should be given maybe because reviewers work for free. I know I'm one of them, and I didn't review this paper, mm-hmm. um, but they typically be given six to eight weeks to review the paper. Then the the what should happen is the academic editor will look at that and see if there's value in this. You know, maybe the there's a couple of possible outcomes. In theory, the the authors will have to make um, minor changes, and it can get published or major changes, which can take, a, you know, in some, I've been part of my own work where we spent a year with paper trying to optimize it, dealing with the very strict questions presented by reviewers and making the changes and getting it published. Okay. Um, and that's okay. That's part of the, what, the valued peer reviewed system. So the first situation here is that this clearly didn't happen because it, it was published um, as part of what they call a special issue in less, in a relatively short period of time, one month. So that was a red flag.
0: Would there be any situation Um, where that wouldn't be a red flag? Like you gotta get the information out quickly because it's so critical during like, let's say the pandemic, right? We're gonna get this out and then we're okay if we're we're publishing it and we can retract it later if, like are there situations where that would be acceptable?
1: I mean, if it was an excellent paper and if the reviewers of the journal were appropriately um, skilled to look at the work, and if it was a quick review, basically, of course that could happen. Um, it's 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 very unlikely though that it, that it happens like that. Um, the other issue is, you know, and I had I did so to tell you what, what's happening. I had communicated then back to the journal um, that you know I have I have an interest in this area. I had lots of questions. i I felt essentially that you know a lot of the outcomes, of that, and I'll show you. I'll take you on a whistle tour of some of them. A lot of the outcomes from this experiment were not actually shown by the data. So the conclusions were, were, were not correct based on what the data in the, in the experiment had presented. And I communicated with the journal. I communicated with the academic editor. The academic editor said to me that uh, she also had major problems, um, with this particular paper. And I queried as to how it could get published in the current form that it was published in. And um, right now we're at a situation that, and you you may be familiar with what you can do, it's called a letter to the editor or a comment to the journal, um, which again is perfect in the context of science. When the journal receives a comment, the scientists may want to comment on something that's positive or something that needs needs extra work or that they disagree with. And the authors of this paper have the right, of course, then to, to explain it or to maybe agree that it, should, that it was a mistake or it should be changed and so on. So we're still in the middle of that. Um, I'll tell you what's interesting is that it's uh, taken significantly longer to have the letter to the editor published hmm. um, than it did to have the entire full paper hmm, published. That's interesting. Um, isn't that interesting? So what I can tell you with openness and, and transparency is that um, myself and my co-authors here from the NRCI I have a letter to, to Nutrients They've told us that they're waiting on the reply um, from the authors um, and they intend on publishing both our letter and uh, uh, the, the reply to that letter um, when it's available. So, per- so, we wait so John, to- then
0: let me ask you, when that becomes available, yeah. you want to have a conversation with, with me and with them on this podcast?
1: I would love it. In fact, again, I'm glad you asked because I actually, how I came across this paper is that I um, basically saw it on LinkedIn and I it was being heavily promoted um by um the president um of uh, the Ocular I think it's the Ocular Nutrition Wellness Group, is that correct in, I believe in, that's, in America?
0: Yeah, or or maybe it's the Ocular Nutrition Society, is that right?
1: Maybe it's the Ocular yeah, Nutrition Society. Know. Sorry, I'm not I'm not overly familiar. But I, I do um I I, I basically commented uh, on uh, once I saw it published that you know, I had some issues uh, with the data. Unfortunately, my post was removed. Hmm. Um, who who would do that? Because I saw the the president of oh, the. So of they can society remove that.
0: They, they can remove that in the settings.
1: Well, they, they removed it from the LinkedIn. Okay. I think that that was the decision. That, and I queried as to why they removed it because all I asked for was an open discussion hmm. uh, where we could have a very professional um, conversation as to. And I'll tell you why this is really important, because I've been the one uh, with other colleagues um, that we've been trying to give confidence to optometrists that nutrition has a major role to play. And when some of the claims that are made within this are clearly not valid, this creates a major problem and it brings a whole layer of uncertainty Mm. to the validity. And I also have a problem because, you know, we spent nearly a decade preparing conducting, interpreting, publishing Crest. And then when you see something that's like this, that is making these uh, claims, which clearly is not supported by the data. And I'll show you now in a second, essentially the null hypothesis stood up here. Their test hypothesis wasn't shown by their own experiment. And what a scientist should do in that situation is accept that and try and understand why that happened. Because that's where the big learnings come from, actually. It's not always just having that your test hypothesis is correct. It's what did the experiment show us? In this case, it was a high zeaxanthin intervention. There was no meso. Could it be that if meso was there, the results would have been better? Could it have been that if the intervention was longer than six months, that the results uh, would have been better?
0: And so you're, But, and but so it, wasn't, so. it wasn't randomized? How do you, where, where do you see that in the well, Let me show you. Yeah, I
1: have a couple of slides so we, we've gone through the aim. The first uh, data that you see in this paper, um, now you look at this, Chris. Okay, I won't. So I'll, I'll tell you one thing. The red line represents the intervention and the, the black line represents the placebo. And this is a measurement of macular pigment. And we're looking at six months of intervention here. Now, the, remember what the research question is that you're going to give this intervention and it's going to significantly improve your macular pigment in a way that's different to the placebo. Okay. Do you think that that data <laughs> suggests that that's the case?
0: Yeah. So, so what I, just so for the people that are listening, you're, you're seeing essentially parallel, um, uh, parallel intervention and placebo lines and the, the intervention line actually is lower uh for mpod levels than the placebo line, but they're parallel along the whole way so so the just to answer your question John i uh would be no
1: okay thank you and i'm not I'm not trying to be funny here I'm just saying I, i'm i I'm so confident in this I'm putting it there for you to even look at it and and you you've summarized it absolutely perfect the other problem here um Chris in terms of the macular pigment is you know the, the statistical analysis that was conducted to report what went on here did not look at the active group compared to placebo it basically ignored not not always but it, it, it ignored the placebo in the most part and it just looked at changes um in terms of what was going on in the active group if we look here Um, And that's why we say it failed to conduct any between group analysis. So by analyzing only the experimental group effects, they cannot be justifiably attributed to the intervention if any effects were happening thereafter. And the other thing I, you may, you may observe here is that, you know, the starting point of the, of the intervention group, of the active intervention group is significantly lower not just at the the beginning, but at the end of the experiment. Can you see that? So there's no crossing, there's no real improvement, there's no significant change. So if the whole idea here was that we had to achieve a change in macular pigment to change vision, I think this experiment clearly shows that this intervention um, used uh, didn't achieve that. There's a couple of reasons for that in my view. One is the duration. One is the fact that it doesn't have the three carotenoids Mrs. Um, Zia and so on. I've been very clear on my communication about that over the years before this study. If anything, I'm kind of glad that this happened because it's it's validated um, a lot of what we've been saying.
0: So is it? Uh, are they, Are me. you saying? I'd I have to go back. The claim was that Please. that that this actually does improve vision. That that oh, supplement yeah. does Nylite. improve vision. Yeah. But but this
1: the would... claim was that it improved macular pigment, right. And it had positive effects on, on night, night vision. vision. Yeah. Hmm. So but so, how can that be the case yeah. when it's not improving macular pigment in the first instance? The whole hypothesis falls at, at the first hurdle. Right. Because the intervention didn't change the target tissue of macular pigment. Now they claim in the paper it does, but the data really shows that it doesn't. Um, you know, and I've requested the data from the authors, um, where which is something you can do as a scientist, you should have the right to accept data anonymized where you can uh, redo analysis if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I would make the crest data available for anyone that wants to look and try and repeat our analysis. No problem. That's that's another layer of quality that an experiment should have. So I've pointed out some of these already. The baseline macular pigment values between the active and placebo group are not comparable, and at six months, and I think you pointed this out yourself, Chris. The intervention group remained lower than the placebo. So the difference in baseline values. And the other thing is, even if they did do the proper analysis, given the significant and stark differences of the pigment at baseline, they would have had to control for that throughout the analysis. And that also uh, wasn't done in the statistical models that were used here. And just some of uh, relatively small points that we can see, well, they're, they're, they're crucially important, actually. Uh, the, the right eye, uh, the claim here is that the right eye supplement group showed an increase in macular pigment going from um point three five uh to point four one over the six month intervention. But the device used, so they use the quantify system. Okay. Okay. Um used to measure exhibits a higher test retest variability than the type of change, the variability that we see. Well you brought up uh, devices
0: before and and so what so obviously there is there's a uh, a different device that that you believe is important or the device really makes a difference in how you're monitoring these?
1: Yeah, we talk about quality, state of the art in terms of assessment. This is a subjective system that doesn't use a peripheral measure in the most part. They tend to not do that. It's highly variable. Their own data shows it's highly variable. The test-retest variability is as high as 0.18 optical density units, whereas the changes that of the variation that we see in both active and placebo are, 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 are lower than that in terms of at the different time points. So you can't claim anything beyond basic variation of the method, is what I'm trying to say here. Um and I'm not surprised. Um I know I'm very familiar with I've been saying for a long time that these systems are subjective, they're very variable, and this data now um uh, and, and that of previous reports show show that to be the case. So the mm-hmm. the reported improvements by the authors here essentially are well within the method variability. Um and, and like One other piece to the data, actually, if we look, because I've studied all of it um, out of interest. If you look at the data on the figure, Chris, so this doesn't match
0: the data in the text,
1: doesn't match the data in the table. Hmm. Yeah, so you can see here what does this figure, what does this value look like to you? So this is the um, uh, B is the left eye, okay? So we're looking at the left eye and we're looking at six months, and you can see up here whereas the left eye's mean changed from 0.35 to 0.37. And that's clearly not 0.37. Hmm. So these are, when I constructed uh, with my colleagues, the letter to the editor, we essentially, and it's, it's a significant length of letter because there's so many issues with this paper, we, we clearly just point out in a very scientific way all of the concerns we have um, about, about this. Just very quickly, I won't, I won't go into it in too much detail, but here's some of the vision outcomes, Chris, which goes back to the, the reason why they did the experiment. And what do you see here? So we're looking at, um, in this case, we're looking at uh, reported effects of the active supplement um, for versus active versus placebo. And this one is a photostress clear. So again, we're looking at a red line and a black line. Do you see any differences there? Yeah, no. no. Yeah, you know, honestly, and so it, it's just it's just bizarre. That the data that was presented clearly showed that not only did the macular pigment not change in a significant way or clearly that it wasn't different to placebo that when we looked at the, the outcome measures of vision there's clearly some practice effects which are happening but they're identical for placebo now what the authors did here was that they looked at maybe the change of the the baseline to six months and said oh vision got better but they did that outside of the context of taking into consideration what happens as practice effects, and the only way to know that is, as I said at the beginning, is to use your placebo data. They didn't.
0: Who paid for okay. this study? Do you know? Did, did they disclose that in the paper? Oh, yeah, it's in the
1: paper. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. So here's here's what I think, because because I, I want to be respectful of your time, and yeah. um and I think this is this is helpful for to to think through what a study is telling us. And I'll tell you that, you know, most people, when I, when I think about it, they'll read a headline. The headline will, um, you know, of, the, of the article, they'll read the article title and they will um, they'll say, Oh, that's interesting. Then they'll read the abstract and they'll get through the abstract. They'll accept most of the conclusions as being accurate. But here's, I, I find the same thing. I'll, I'll read through a study because I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. It's like, Oh, it's interesting. I wonder. That kind of flies in the face of this other thing that I'm thinking about. I want to look at the I want to look at the rest of the paper, and uh, and hopefully they align. Professor Nolan, as as always, this was another great conversation. I can't wait to have it again uh, in a few months. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later. Um, uh, but thanks so much for being on. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun for me. I think this is going to stimulate a lot of conversations. And hopefully it'll bring to the surface some of the things that you hope will be brought to the surface as well. I think the entire community always benefits from a vibrant conversation and discussion between people who disagree because we can find uh, ways to advance uh, and take better care of patients. So thanks so much for doing this.
1: God bless you. Lovely to see you again, Chris, and keep up the great work you're doing.